Welcome back, listeners, to yet another exciting adventure here in the extended podcast universe of Matt Goes to the Movies for the sixth entry of a show we call Rob's Reviews. And we like to take a deeper look at some of the films that have really made a long-term impact on us over the years. And while The Rocketeer won't make most people's top 100 lists, you won't find many people who don't have a blast watching it and remember it fondly. Releasing in 1991 on a budget of $35 million, the film began its life in 1983 as an adaption of the comic book of the same name. After years of bouncing around Hollywood, it was finally released with stars Bill Campbell, Alan Arkin, Jennifer Conley, Paul Sorvino, and Timothy Dalton to final box office numbers of $46 million. Seen by some as just a toy and merchandising cash-in attempt by Disney, the film carries a 66% critical and 65% audience score, which I actually find really surprising because I don't know anybody who dislikes this movie or has a bad thing to say about this movie. So to help me take a fun trip down memory lane to visit a film I have not watched in... It's probably been 20 years. Uh, I am once again happy to be joined by, me, by my younger brother, Eric. So, uh, Eric, welcome back to the show. Okay. So, The Rocketeer, when's, before you watched it for this, when was the last time you think you would have realistically seen it? It would have been on VHS. <laughs> Whenever that was. Yes. I mean, that's it was, it was definitely VHS. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't own this on DVD. I, I uh, definitely checked it out on Disney Plus, which, by the way, if you're listening to this right now and you're thinking like, hey, I've never seen this movie. I wonder what it's all about. Or if you're like, I have not seen this in probably also 20 years. I mean, this movie's 30 years old at this point. Um, and if you're thinking to yourself, I really enjoyed that. I'm going to go check that out. It's on Disney Plus right now. Stream away. Have a blast. You're, you'll definitely enjoy it. You won't regret it. So we're going to move into... Our first segment here, uh, we're going to call this popcorn time. So this will be spoiler-free thoughts. So if you're listening to this right now and you're trying to decide if you should watch this or not, the next segment, totally spoiler-free. If you haven't seen it in a while and you likely have forgotten most of the movie, uh, that's fine. You'll be you'll be able to check this out spoiler-free and then decide if you want to go rewatch it first before continuing on with the episode. So, Eric, if you had to convince somebody who has not seen The Rocketeer to watch this, what would you tell them about it? Okay, so first I have to offer a little bit of a header into this. I neglected terribly in our past recording I didn't talk about how Boondock Saints was a heist movie. It was a heist. <laughs> this is also absolutely supremely a heist. And I, this is actually out of our, what did we talk about? Like six episodes now. This is the first this is six, time. Yeah. This is the first time in that number of recordings that I've actually prepared for this segment. And I tried to think of a better way to describe it. Spoiler free than what the little lead-in was what Disney had as a description, and I couldn't. They nailed it. So I'm just going to read it verbatim for what the little uh, teaser was for Disney. It says, The discovery of a top-secret jetpack hurls a pilot into the path of a devious Nazi spy. What more could you want? I mean, the... If you're sitting down on a Saturday afternoon and you have time to kill, like what else are you really looking for at that point for entertainment? Jetpacks and devious Nazis. Period. 
you, you had me at jetpacks and then you threw in the devious <laughs> Nazis as a bonus. I'm yeah. 100% in. You know, whip and the cherry on top right there. It's, it's right there. You know, Nazis tend to be kind of a go-to for villains, both in film, TV, comics, video games, because you can just... You can just lay waste. Like that's why there's yeah. so many World War II shooting video games out there. Cause you can and same thing, this also works for zombies, by the way, because you can you can lay waste to as many zombies as you want to, and nobody will bat an eye. You can do the same thing with Nazis, and it's just like, well, they were kind of yes. Nazis, you know, like they, they had it coming. They got the they got the swastika and the iron eagle and everything. Yes. They had it coming. Everyone can unite against the Nazi. That's period. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you come from, what you believe in. Nazis are everybody's enemy, and so we can all rally behind uh, Nazi killing or thwarting or foiling. You know, and it's really probably the last time in world history that we will get a true evil just in in, in a, an unarmed conflict. It might be the last time that we just get one side is clearly the bad guys and has no justification for why they're doing like you know, you look at other conflicts that have happened since villain. then. Yep. You can kind of like, you know, th- there's, there's, there's points to be made as to why they feel the way that they do. Um, it, you know, Saddam's kind of a, a, another outlier there. Like there's really no justification for, for what he did. Uh, he was a pretty terrible guy universally accepted as a terrible guy, but the Nazis as a group, it's just like, universally a villain there is no redeeming qualities at all whatsoever so you can use them as movie villains all you want it they just they're perfect in that way so if i was to try to convince somebody man this is this is a phenomenal adventure film there's it's everything you want in just a fun action movie that is kind of pulpy a little bit like it definitely shows its comic book origins this feels very much like a comic book origin story film that we get like one of the better ones like not one of the dc ones that most of them are sadly pretty bad Um, (laughs) there's there's been some good stuff like like batman begins was was obviously phenomenal in in that whole trilogy but a lot of the recent stuff from dc's been been pretty bad um but like one of the good mcu origin stories this feels just like any of those um you can truly see it um, it, it harkens back to a time. And again, there's some nostalgia there. Not everything was always as great as people remember it being, but you know, things were a little bit simpler. The heroes were, were easy to figure out. You know, they could throw one right cross and, and hit a guy clean and he never like ducked it or anything like that. Like everything just kind of works out. Um, the music is great, uh, all throughout this. What a phenomenal score. I, I absolutely adore the score for this movie. Um, it really hits the right notes all the time. It's really, um, it's, it's kind of like it's it's whimsical, right? Like there's, there's, oh yeah, there's moments when it's like there's a, it's like Disney put their thumbprint on a, a similar style of like Hoosiers, right? Or like October Sky, or even there's moments where there, there's like Indiana Jones, like there's almost kind of a John Williams flair to it but it still fits the the era because this is like 1938. This is like pre-World War II, you know, as far as America's involvement. And, yeah. you know, it, it, it just, it, it does work. And I'll, I'll dive into this way more when we talk about the uh, playlist. Yes, there's, um, 
there's some really fun stuff here. It, you know, keep in mind, this is 38. So this is before Pearl Harbor. This is before a lot of stuff. We weren't really in the war yet. I, I think there was a lot of naivete about what was actually happening in Europe at the time that this was going on. Um, there's kind of an uncomfortable history we have with fascism and, and Nazism in, in this country. And uh, there was a lot of people that were walking around prominent people in the United States, actually, that were uh, Nazi sympathizers. There's, there's a long list. You can find it if you want. I'm not going to accuse anybody necessarily. Uh, but one of the ones that kind of lends himself to this film, uh, Errol Flynn was uh, thought to have been a Nazi sympathizer. Um, and that is who Neville Sinclair, the villain of this film, is heavily, heavily modeled after. You can definitely, I mean, it's obvious who they, who they yeah. picked to kind of model their villain from. Um, although it's been denied that he actually was for a long time that was kind of accepted um but there were there was other prominent people throughout the country and i i don't think necessarily everybody knew exactly the extent of of the holocaust but that's a whole other thing for a whole other type of show that's that's not really what we're doing but i think it's important contextually to remember like we didn't really know everything that was going on at the time which kind of makes certain things later on feel a little bit weird and a little bit out of place but um yeah just getting back to this you know it's it's funny to me how in 1991 uh when this movie comes out some of the visual effects still really hold up and I think a large part of that is because they didn't try to cartoon the whole thing the way that if this movie was made today, it would all be CG, it'd all be green screen, and it would look mostly terrible. Practical effects, I will die on this hill. Practical effects always, always, always look better. They work better. They transmit the feeling of everything you're trying to accomplish. Just it's better. So I had a couple notes about this, actually. I'm super pumped that you said it. I, I did write word for word one of my notes says pretty decent visual effects and then later as i was doing a little bit of research i noticed that um the fiction i'm sorry the academy of science fiction fantasy and horror films usa uh they actually were nominated this film was nominated for a saturn award um multiple by the way but this one specifically was nominated for best uh special effects uh, Ken Ralston from Ad- Industrial Light and Magic, which is where Lucasfilm and all the Star Wars stuff, that's where that comes from. You might have heard of Industrial Light and Magic before. I think they've yeah. done some things that have been important. Uh, yeah, so ILM is is the player uh, in, in that realm. And um, this, you're 100% right. It's such a great point that they really do a great job of making this believable. And you, you're watching it, and not one point that I sit here and think that's fake. It just didn't yeah. seem that way to me. That's going to kind of conclude what we're going to call popcorn time, which will be the end of spoiler free. So um, if you want to go watch this film or rewatch this film, because you've mostly forgotten everything and would like to sort of enjoy it again for the first time, uh, pause here and uh, we'll wait. And then uh, come back and come back and hang out with us again. So, <clears throat> want to move into the next segment. We want to talk about what works about this film and what doesn't. So, there's a lot of things that really do work about this film, and and I want to kind of start with the you know the historical elements, the truly historical elements that are lifted right out of that period of time. Um, that as far as things that really work. And I, and I kind of want to start with Howard Hughes, who was the original Tony Stark, Elon Musk hybrid. Um, and you know, was a real person that had a lot of really, you know, amazing things that he's responsible for, particularly with aviation. 
it is 100% conceivable that he would have been working on a project like this. Like that doesn't seem like a stretch at all that Howard Hughes was involved in this 100%. It's definitely conceivable when you find out some of the things that have been declassified about Howard Hughes, there was a project he was working on during the cold war called project Azorian. Google it. If you have time, it's worth it. Uh, project Azorian and this is just what has been declassified. So take that for what that's worth in terms of what was actually happening. But essentially, this sounds like there a, was a really deep dive, like a real rabbit hole that you could get lost in for a couple hours. Uh, at least a couple hours. So not only is it a deep dive, it literally is in the ocean because a Russian sub went missing and the Ruskies couldn't find it. Uh, they had no and it was a nuclear sub. There was there was actually nuclear torpedoes on the sub. Uh, they couldn't find it, which is kind of a problem with nuclear material. So we kind of said, uh, the United States, when I say we, uh, <laughs> let's go see if we can find it. We actually found it. And then it was a matter of trying to get it off of the ocean floor. Uh, it's this crazy wild, like how this actual story has never been made into its own movie is beyond me because it is a wild story. And also keep in mind, this is just the parts that have been declassified. This God only like- knows what was actually going on. This is like the ultimate last one in his rocket rotten egg. Like yeah, really playing for keeps. And I will say by the way, that uh, in the film, Howard Hughes is played by Terry O'Quinn, who most people probably won't recognize. I mean, you'll recognize him as like, Oh, he's been in a bunch of stuff, but he um, actually was a very uh, primary character in the show. Lost. Did you ever watch lost? You know, it's one of those ones that I wish would have come out when DVR was more available because I remember seeing that advertised. I think it came out when I was in college and I was like, wow, that looks amazing. But I will it's, hate myself if I miss an episode and yeah, don't know yeah, what's yeah. going on. So I'm not you, even going to bother starting. You, you can't. You have to start from the beginning. And, and he plays a really central character to that show. And Terry O'Quinn, perfect casting for him as Howard Hughes, a, a sort of a mysterious oh, yeah. character. He does really, really well with it. There's, there's other casting decisions that are fantastic. Uh, they really knock it out of the park with some of these. Yeah. Um, so project is uh, It's, it's definitely worth checking out. Howard Hughes was instrumental in kind of inventing how they would actually go about doing this. Um, so, you know, it kind of reminded me when I was, when I was kind of reading about this, um, when those, uh, when those soccer players were stuck in the cave and Elon Musk was going to like build a tiny submarine to go in and get them. Like it kind of reminded me of sort of those vibes. They ultimately didn't end up being needed to, to do that, but it, it kind of was, was sort of wild like that. There's, there's some really fun historical stuff in here. Like I said, um, you know, in thinking about the importance of technology and how easily, some historians believe that the war could have gone either way um, if the Germans would have invested in the right technology at the right time, um, particularly their rocket program, uh, which that's actually debated too, by the way. Like, I'm not going to you know, claim that they could have won if they just would have had better missiles and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> but that is, you know, there's, there's people that will debate that. You think about the importance of technology. Imagine, and I, and I kind of went down this rabbit hole in my mind for a little bit how different uh, rocket packs would have made things if the Germans would have gotten a hold of them. And then I started thinking about it and I went, and I'm, I'm going to kind of just dump on the whole concept of this movie for like two seconds here. It's going to be a little longer than two seconds. Actually. I'm pretty certain that if you put infantry guys in rocket packs, they would basically just be like skeet shooting. 
Like it would just be flying targets. I mean, they had machine guns at the time. These guys would go down just about as fast as they would go up. Is there other than maybe some paramilitary, you know, some, some clandestine operations at night, like quiet insertion, quiet exfiltration, I can't. I can't see this being used on the traditional battlefield. I mean, am I missing something, Eric, or does this kind of yeah. seem like generally a bad tactical idea? So, like, I'm weirdly TV qualified to talk about this because, <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen a ton of war stuff, and that's you know we have our dad to thank for that. But um, you know, we've been through Band of Brothers in the Pacific a bunch of times, and I actually just somewhat recently watched Saving Private Ryan and you know, they do talk about like the anti-aircraft stuff and it's, it's not a joke. Like they really would send serious amounts of, of manpower in to take out like a gun emplacement and they would commit so many resources to just taking this one thing out so that they could actually have a presence in the air because that one thing that this one sixty millimeter i think or 30 millimeter i don't know i'm gonna do it uh either way would take out everything that they put in the air so like if they would have you know if the the allies would have had one emplacement in any area that they wanted to have some kind of incursion it would have been nothing you 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 have guys in jetpacks cool uh we'll just just shoot them down and it'll be over and you know, no big deal. So like, it's, it's kind of a moot point, I think. Yeah. I mean, it moves around pretty fast. So I guess if you want to make the case that it could have worked just the speed alone that it moves, you know, maybe would have made it harder to, uh, to do. But I, I, I still think like, if you can't get them with the, the big machine guns from a distance, like once they get close enough, just a bunch of guys with shotguns and it's pretty much just, just call it a day. Right. I think if, like, uh, if they were trying to bring this on, it's like a, like the company level, it wouldn't have worked. Cause it, it's too visual. Like even yeah. so, like it would have to be at a minimum, like the pl- platoon or squad level, but you're using them strictly as like a clandestine behind enemy lines, sneaky type of thing. Like you, yeah, that's the only it. tactical use you can, yes. I can really think of is, is just exfiltration to, to get out once you've done what you got to do. Because right. let's be honest, like thinking about the actual military applications for things that already fly, like airplanes, um, they have armor on them for a reason to like protect stuff because they're they're kind of in the air and you can kind of find them fairly easily and they, they don't really move fast enough, right. well, at least especially at this time in history. By the way, there's like, you know, and they see they show this in the movie a little bit and there's there's some suspension of disbelief that's required, but like there's a learning curve here. Like these these are these have to be somewhat like pilot trained, basically expert level pilots that would you like, you can't just strap a rocket pack on the back of your average grunt and expect him to successfully operate, you know? (laughs) Right. Well, and that's, I think, so willing suspension of disbelief is, is important for a lot of the rocket stuff. There's some other moments that, because the movie is so fun and you're just enjoying it and the music hits the right, just emotion at the right time, you just kind of go with it. There's so many times that I think another movie like this, but not as good as this, I would absolutely rip to shreds at different points, but it's just so much fun. And it's, 
I don't know necessarily that everything about it, again, it's a comic book movie. So, and it's, it's made like a comic book movie, even before those things dominated and made all of the money at the box office. Like it still feels that way. Does it feels like it belongs as part of the MCU. And and a lot of those, you just kind of, you just go with it. But uh, anything else on, on the technology of the era that you want to, that you want to cover? No, I think that actually they really did great because I think, in 91, they probably had more at their disposal than they used. And yeah. I think that the restraint is probably um, the biggest contributing factor to, to how well it was pulled off. Yeah. So some other things that I think work really well. I want to talk about the scene where uh, Cliff and PV test the rocket for the first time. And I just want to talk about how fun that is. And, and I want to talk about how much fun the characters themselves are having. And it's just, it's just two guys dicking around at night, watching stuff blow up. These, <laughs> well, they these guys could be any of us. They stole right. a statue first, which is right. hilarious. They cut the, sta- yeah, they cut the statue down. I mean, they, this could be any of us, like anybody listening to this right now, this could have been you and one of your idiot friends when you this were is, like in high school or college. This is like your senior prank, right? Stealing a statue. Right. Which, by the way, is a heist. Okay, so there's a little bit of a right. heist in a heist. It's a, it's, it's meta and <laughs> yeah. Um, so that scene alone, it's just, it's just really a lot of fun. Um, like I mentioned, you kind of have to suspend a little bit of disbelief because man, he kind of figures out how to use this thing pretty quickly. Like there's, there's still some moments where he's a little unsure of it that are played mostly just for laughs, but. Um, he kind of yeah, he kind of becomes like that, pretty adept pretty quick in the middle of the field with that statue. They really like burn the crap out of that thing, and it's just like uh, yeah. there's no way you're ever doing this successfully without burning off your balls. You know, <laughs> like it's yeah, it's clear that it's just not possible. And then he kind of just picks it up, and you know, he's he's a little bit of a jetpack savant. Yeah. So uh, some other stuff that works um, in general. I feel like this is a good uh, look back in time. Um, I, I want to know where I can buy the jacket that Cliff wears. I want Ugh, one. It's like, so sweet. It's, it's the it's, coolest leather jacket. It's so I think sweet. In, maybe in film history, like this is maybe cooler than even like Tom Cruise's like bomber jacket from Top Gun. What like, about, what about, I, I think it's one of those two in Terminator two. Cause that's pretty rad. Like that's, that's really it is. That's an iconic leather jacket wearing. It's it's an iconic look, but it's it, Hall of Fame. It doesn't, it's Hall of Fame. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't separate itself from other jackets that you could find. This this has got a different look and, and it's it cool does. and it's, it's got the double breasted like button thing going on, which it it's so yeah. sick. It really is. I don't know that either of us could pull that off, by the way. You're way too tall and, and long. <laughs> And I'm way too yeah. fat. So it's just, it wouldn't work for either I, one of us. But yeah. Somebody should try to pull this off and make it a thing. Um, listeners, if you know where I can find one of these, uh, I would like you to email the show mgttmpodcast at gmail.com or interact yeah. with any of our social media platforms. Uh, if you happen to know where I could find one of these or if somebody recreates these, there's there's some unbelievable cosplay like creators you know, out there. Like not just the people that dress can... up, but the people who actually manufacture this stuff. I, I also love there's the the moment when he first takes the rocket pack and and PV wants so badly to be pissed at Cliff and scold him 
but also at the same time wants to jump up and down and celebrate how insanely cool that whole thing just was. Like he's got both emotions at the same time. And, and I just really like that about that particular scene. I want to talk about PV a little bit more because I really think he works well. He's, he's a character we've kind of seen before in that he represents kind of an amalgamation of like Alfred and Q to James Bond. Well, he's, he's not he's really the, a father Obi-Wan. figure. He's yeah. A little bit of an Obi-Wan. Yeah. yeah. Um, a little bit of that mentor, but more of a friend than a mentor kind of figure. Um, he's, he's really a fun character and I really enjoy him. Uh, and, and I, I, I like that kind of like genius character that can kind of figure out the thing that even the super genius couldn't figure out just because of one little thing that was overlooked. Um, I, I really enjoy this character overall. Yeah. So like part of really great film is character development, which we've talked about. We've talked about this a lot. Great film develops characters with other characters. And I think Clifford's character development draws very heavily from PV. Like you learn a lot about Clifford by the way that, that PV interacts with him. Right. Yeah. So I think that that helps drive home. Like he, he is, you know, Clifford is the, the all American boy. He's the, you know, the captain of the baseball team and, you know, he's got the varsity jacket and he's, he's the prom king. Like, that's the dude. He's still a freaking dork. You know, <laughs> let's not yeah. mistake ourselves. Yeah. But like, PV still, he adds an element to the character of Clifford where he sort of is an adult, but he's also like adolescent and, and PV sort of guiding him through that. And, uh, you know, it, it's actually, it, it works really well. It's very cool. Uh, you know, I love that you talked about the comic book aspect of it because they really, they do sort of crunch a bunch of issues into like by issues. I mean like issues of comics, like, you know, physical comics that you're holding in your hand. They squeeze a bunch of that into a short period of time to try to explain their relationship together. And like, they show that like Clifford is kind of an, uh, you know, immature adolescent, you know, jockish dork at the same time, but like PV is his compass and that's, what guides him. And, and I think it, it, it really, the acting and the writing, I think it, 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 despite this being kind of a hokey Disney movie, it, it's kind of masterful. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot there. I think we, I think we learn more about cliff through PV than we even do through Jenny. Um, I, I think, she, but I still like with her, um, we'll go ahead and talk about Jenny at this point. Um, I like that. She's not, just a damsel in distress. No, um, she's that's not. no, she's capable. She's smart. Um, she, you know, she's not going to tolerate her boyfriend kind of sucking at being a boyfriend. Like that's not okay. She's not just going to stand for it. Um, so yeah, I, I really like the, the way that she's written and she has, uh, uh, she's principled and she stands on those principles and like you, yeah. you as an audience member, you can, trust her character you know like her her moral compass is is there and you see it and she is like so like and again i'll get into this later with my uh playlist explanation but like just the visual of her is the classic pinup girl right it's 100 percent. 
She's very. As soon as you see her in this movie, you, I mean, it's if you had to say, if, if you were trying to explain to somebody like what that look was, if somebody wasn't familiar with it, um, you could just do a Google image search on Jennifer Connelly from this movie because that is that is the that's like that's like the definition of what that look is. She's quite. They did a phenomenal job with her hair, makeup, yeah. uh, just her casting, her costuming, like, and and she does a phenomenal job with the role too. She does. She's a great actress. You know, she uh, she did get nominated for best supporting actress uh, for a Saturn Award, um, but she she did she did a great job because she kind of helped correct some of Clifford's thinking, and you know, because he he does like the regular typical idiot boyfriend stuff. Like we we as dudes, we screw stuff up. We're dumb, right? Like we don't know. Yeah. We don't, oh we're, yeah. We're, yeah. We don't yeah. know any better. If you're if you're a woman who has a boyfriend who's an idiot, just take this apology from me on behalf of him. We don't know any better. All right, we're sorry. He's sorry. I'm stupid. He's stupid. Okay, it's not our fault. It's just it's just how it works. We suck. We're not good at it. And like Cliff shows the tropiest of tropes, right? Like he. <laughs> Like he just he does the dumbest stuff as a boyfriend and like he gets jealous at the drop of a hat and I mean who wouldn't at you know Timothy Dalton who plays Neville Sinclair who could you come up with a douchier name than Neville Sinclair so well perfect. not only just the, that's the douchiest version of a 1938 actor name that you could think of yeah so like perfect perfect creation of a villain by uh, the the team here but like she is at no point like she obviously she has some kind of admiration for him right but like she is at no point like completely smitten with him she's not yeah she catches him yeah like she there's, catches there's, him with his lies there's no roll of the dice she could fall for him at any moment like they kind of they kind of tease you with it a little bit but like as a character yeah. she's never ever even approached that point where she would consider it like she's loyal and faithful to cliff the entire time if he would just stop being an idiot and he can't help himself being you know a dude the y chromosome it really ruins a lot of things and he ruins it and so like and that's again it's like ultimately like you really could describe this whole movie as is sort of a love story without being lame about it like it's not a romantic comedy it's not a rom-com it's not a it's not a uh, a romantic movie in any way shape or form but like he really is doing this with uh it's like a sole motivation of like doing the right thing that's number one right but like that's one a one b is like this is this is i'm trying to look cool <laughs> Like yeah, I'm, tr- I'm trying to be a hero and I'm trying to to impress uh, my girlfriend. And, and he does a bad job of it at sometimes, and, but does. a very good job of it when it when it counts. Yeah, it's really it's crazy. Like if this was like a Fanduel uh, sports betting situation, you just you wouldn't know how to make heads or tails of it. Yeah, you know what? He kind of reminds me a lot of of the way that Tom Holland portrays Spider-Man. You know, he, he goops around and he, he's, he likes to hang out with his buddies. He, he enjoys the abilities that, you know, his superhero-ness gives him. Um, at the same time though, he still screws up. He still like gets himself in, in backward situations. He gets in way over his head. He, you know, he kind of reminds me he's the character is maybe a little bit closer to Iron Man, but the way that, cliff is it reminds me a little bit more spider-man um yeah, as, one more as, like, as a hero he's kind of nonchalant spider like 
uh, Iron Man ish, right? But like as a human yeah. being, he's way more Peter Parker. Oh yeah, yeah. What uh, one more thing on uh, Jenny Blake, uh, the character played by Jennifer Connelly. I really do enjoy the fact that she. We kind of like touched on a little bit when Neville Sinclair's trying to pull all of his tricks and things like that that I'm sure have worked time and time again. Uh, she is smart enough and not willing to just be smitten by the handsome movie star to just fall for it. So I, I like that the movie didn't, didn't give us the, the easy kind of screenwriting that, that I hate when I, and, and listeners of this show know the one thing that I complain about almost more than the, the thing I complain about the most is how bad the last Jedi is and that people don't accept that <laughs> it's bad. The second thing I complain about the most is lazy screenwriting. Yeah, and they yeah. avoid that here. That's that's the second biggest thing I complain about on this show. Well, they um, do. I want to, and like he, the part of the authenticity of this, and you know, we talk about the male screw up thing. Is like he, they have a legitimate argument, but like in not yeah. legitimate in the sense of the movie, but like legitimate in sense of life, male, female, husband, wife argument over her work. Like he's minimizing. He screwed up. He minimizes her work and like she has placed this huge importance on this thing and he makes that thing small for her. And that is gentlemen, that is a fatal flaw. Okay. Yeah. Take it from yeah. So <laughs> yeah, been I've been, I've been married for, for 15 years. I watched that scene every, it's the first time I've seen, this is definitely the first time I've seen this movie since I've been married. And I saw that and I went, Oh, oh like Idiot. I forgot about that part of the movie. And I just went, Oh no. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, oh, you didn't. Oh, God. Oh. You feel for him. Because, like, if you're experienced, you know, like, bro, you just screwed up so bad. <laughs> like, it's like, I really it. hope your couch is comfortable because that's where you're going to be. You really messed up. You, you done messed up. Yep. Some other things that I think are really fun and work well. Let's can we talk about how awesome that South Sea Club is? The look of it is cool. Uh, and I I low key wish so places sweet. like this still existed. Like you could just kind of just not in the places that not were really. Yeah, but not not like not like that's easy to get to or like people still go to, but like just everybody gets dressed nice because people dress like crap today. Like they really do. Yeah. But everybody yeah, dresses nice. Right. There's live music, there's food, there's dancing. You kind of hang out. Everybody has fun. You socialize. Like that just looks like a, a good time to me. Um, this whole scene in general um, it, that follows it with the mob is actually really funny and, and kind of a ton of fun. Um, fast forwarding to when they're back at the club. Oh my goodness. The whole thing is funny. Like he's awkward. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, the whole thing is actually not well planned out. Cause there's a lot of ways that he could have dropped that note. That was less obvious than, than pouring the soup on it. But the, when he's running from them and he's running through the kitchen and then he has to use the rocket to escape, that whole scene is just really a, a ton of fun. I, I enjoy it a lot. He, he plays kind of a really good doofus, right? But like, yeah, he ultimately is not like, I mean, cause he is an idiot as a, as a man, but as like yeah. a hero, as a hero, he's fearless. And the confluence of those two characters really, it, it helps create some of the drama that this movie, you know, doesn't intentionally create. It just, it works out organically because of how well done it is. So um, some other things that work really well, the, <laughs> so they, 
I'm going to fast forward a little bit to when he gets he gets captured by the FBI and they take him to Howard Hughes and PV's there and they're trying to figure out what's what's going on. I love that Hughes just has a guy with the the cartoon already queued up and ready to go. Like, hey man, if I need to show the cartoon, I need you to have it ready on the projector. <laughs> like, make sure the reels are loaded and make sure like it's threaded and and everything's ready to go in case I give dude. you the signal. He pays this dude to be ready. He carries around like probably what, like three suitcases <laughs> worth of crap, right? <laughs> Just in case he needs one of those film reels. Like he probably, I want to know how many other reels of film did he have, depending on what Cliff's responses were in that case. Like, yeah. did he have other film reels he needed there to show? It had to have been like some pharmaceutical stuff, right? And like something else. Like that's that's like that's really like when people talk about like you know. Beyonce money and Oprah money. Like that's, that's what Howard Hughes was back then. Like he had (laughs) serious, authentic, sincere F U money that he could have paid this dude to be there present (laughs) everywhere he was during all waking moments with all this film crap ready to go. He could have done that. This is totally believable. Yeah. Howard Hughes owned the first remote control. It was just a guy he paid to go change the channels for him. (laughs) Exactly. Um, It's, it, this, that whole scene is kind of fun. I, I actually really do like the period cartoon and I don't, I want to be very specific here. I don't like what it depicts. Okay. But in terms of how they use it and, and show like, this is kind of what those things look like back then, those propaganda films. Um, I, I think it was really well executed and really sets the the tone for the period. So I, I kind of like that too. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was such a big part of uh, the Germans. uh effort was the, the propaganda machine they really were focused so heavily on that to try to turn people's um emotions and loyalties through propaganda and it's really good material to look at um you know if you have time to to do a deep dive into youtube you know just look at world war ii propaganda or if you want to see propaganda you can pretty much just open any social media p- platform that you want there's plenty of it out there still yeah. to this day anything with an uh, influencer involved is straight up propaganda i promise yeah yeah um eric anything else you want to talk about that works or do you want to get right into your favorite scene oh uh, let's roll with it what's your favorite scene go ahead you uh, i'll let you start despite the fact that i think the fight scenes are pretty crappy um I do think that ultimate, like the so, e- if you take each fight scene as a as an individual play or act itself, the climax of the fight scene itself is pretty sweet. The fight on the zeppelin is so it's like it's not great as far as a fight scene goes, but the whole scene itself is so cool. Um, so I think that's, that's got, I mean, that's the climax of the film. So I think that's probably going to be my favorite. Um, it's my favorite scene as well with a close second of the, uh, the, the moment he has to escape from the South sea club. I, I just enjoy kind of the nuttiness of that. It's, it's very implausible, it, just like his escape from that moment where he's um, being held by Howard Hughes and the, and the FBI, that whole escape is incredibly implausible, but, um, like we just don't really care in this kind of movie. Like it's it, you're not supposed to care that anything that happens is implausible. Like the, the rules of physics just kind of go right out the window and you just go, Oh, but I'm having fun and the music's good. So you just roll with yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of so, throwaways here where you just, yeah, don't, you just, you don't, you don't you just have to it. be that invested scientifically into it. Right. Um, 
One other quick thing I will mention. Holy cow. The goon they find for Lothar. (laughs) So effective. I mean, he doesn't, he barely speaks when he does the voice that, um, so it's, it's an actor. um, He, he, his actual name was already taken um, in the, the film actor, the, sorry, the screen actors guild. I almost said the film actors guild. That's from uh, team America world police. That's something completely different. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Very different film altogether. Um, So he decided because he was seven feet tall. So his agent told him to go by tiny Ron Taylor so that he would have kind of a different listing in the, in the registry. Um, The choices they make for him in terms of just his line delivery, the prosthetics, uh, all of it, just, man, that guy, you know, he's, he is that classic, you know, larger than life comic book henchman, like that doesn't exist in reality. I think just even little notes like this guy helps set the stage that or helps set the table that this, this film isn't supposed to be taken as reality because people like that don't really exist. He is. So like my first thought when I saw him, besides the fact that I'm not kidding, I have, truly had nightmares about this guy okay like he is <laughs> ni- he his face and his voice his size his presence that is nightmare fuel as again yep f- i'm five or six years old at the point when this movie comes out but like if you in way before my time but still accessible for me as a, at a young age dick tracy that's the first thing i thought of whenever i rewatched this to take notes on it yeah, this this is a Dick Tracy villain right here. Yep, where he's somewhat fantastical, right? Like a little bit of there's a little bit of fantasy element to it. Yeah, but but not so much where you feel like you're watching like Aliens or like Total Recall where somebody has three boobs. Like you're you know, it's just this giant ugly dude who's paid to be <laughs> a giant ugly dude. <laughs> And yeah. that's what he does. And like, and he's good most, at it, but he's extremely good at it. It's so effective. And like the most poignant part of his character is his, his lack of, of dialogue. The things that he does say speak so much louder, like because of the fact that he doesn't say anything else. And like when he's talking, he's like the, his voice, he just, you know, he's, he's questioning people. He's very direct. He's not, he's not asking you, you know, your name and your life story. He just wants to know about the rocket. Like that's how he says it. And it's, <laughs> it's so serious. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Paul Servino, who once again plays a gangster in this movie, um, you know, even has a line about how, you know, he broke his guy in half and they kind of, yeah, it's, it's maybe a little dark for a, for a Disney movie. It kind of comes pretty naturally to Paul Sorvino, doesn't it? I think that maybe he maybe really was involved in some stuff. <laughs> Might have been. He's he's good at it, though. Um, we're going to go ahead and move on to some some things that don't particularly work about this movie. There's there's not going to be as many because it's certainly one that we enjoy. But right out of the gate, these are the worst Foley effects of gunfire I have ever heard on a oh film my God. ever. I, I mean, I there are better. Even... I didn't even write that down, but the moment that you said Foley, I was like, oh, yeah, that was garbage. That was They're so terrible. bad. <laughs> I'm fairly certain what they did was they went to Toys R Us, which was still a thing back then, and they went down the like the military gun aisle, and they grabbed the first thing they found, and they just recorded whatever sound that made and went, eh, that's probably good enough. It's, Bang. it's inexcusable. <laughs> it's bad. 
but like it, it was it could even, only the sound wasn't even it, like that was terrible but like the timing was also so crappy it was yeah it was really bad it was bad it it could only have been suggested and approved by people who have never actually heard what real guns sound like when they are fired I I don't accept any other answers on that. Um, so it, it kind of a minor thing. It doesn't really hurt your overall enjoyment of the film. Um, there's there's kind of this weird move, moment later where when they're filming the the fake movie with Neville Sinclair, uh, they have to reset the whole thing because somebody blew a line. Um, they they like set the camera up multiple times and they reshoot like just the parts that they need. Like just cause somebody blew a line, like this isn't the Copacabana entrance from Goodfellas where it's like a three and a half minute long steady shot. Actually it's longer than that. Like it's, they reset, like they wouldn't use the same camera that was filming all the action to film the close up of her saying that line. Like even as a kid, I knew that. And that seemed yeah. always just, it seemed weird to me. Like how does Hollywood not know how Hollywood works? It just, it well, felt weird. It was, it was dramatic for the sake of adding a dramatic element to it, they could have done better. So that, that to me, like the fight scenes, they don't work, but honestly, they don't need to work. This isn't, this isn't a, a, a Tony jaw yeah. or Jackie Chan film where I need to believe <laughs> that's not fight. what you're there for. Yeah. Right. That's, this is hundred percent. Not why I'm here. I'm here to be entertained. And the fight scenes are not necessarily a, a, a main course or entree in my entertainment. They're, they're a, a, an aperitif. And so if they suck, it's okay. Yeah. Um, kind of sticking around in that same uh, period of the movie, when Cliff shows up to talk to Jenny about the rocket, why does he need to see her at work about that? Like, I know he can't, like, it's 1938. He can't just, like, text her and be like, hey, I got this big <laughs> thing to tell you about when you, when you get home. Uh, but it's, like, weird. Like, why does he have to, like, go interrupt her at work to talk about this thing? Like, I don't know. It just kind of seemed weird. And it, it feels more of, like, a plot convenience um, than, than anything that actually makes sense. But also, again, just to be devil's advocate, it plays on him being an idiot. Uh, you know, an And he idiot. was just excited. Yeah, he, he needs to, you know, there needed to be another boyfriend screw up where he doesn't take her career seriously and, and he minimizes, you know, his impact on her career. Yeah. So it, it, it moves the story along in, I don't know that it needed to, but it did. They could have found they, a lot of other reasons for him to be there. I think. Well, I mean, how else would they, or be, for, uh, I think there's some other ways they could have found for, um, for Neville to find out kind of what was going on there. Well, but. yeah, that's what like, there needed to be some kind of like catalyst or prequel to him and Neville's uh, like nemesis relationship. Right. So like that's yeah. kind of where it starts. Yeah. Uh, a couple other things that I think don't necessarily work really well for me. Um, they put a lot of rounds into the house. So when they, when they show up to, uh, to try to, you know, find him and, and I, I don't know, is that his house or PV's house? I'm not positive. Um, the man, dog? they sure fire. Oh no, not the dog. When they're no, when they're oh. at the house. Okay. They shoot a lot. They shoot a lot of bullets and they've got some pretty thick plot armor on that keeps them pretty safe. Uh, it kind of occurs to me that maybe gangsters should learn how to not hip fire their Tommy guns. Uh, perhaps they that's, might have a better chance. That's the only way to fire them. God. Yeah. I, I love how they do this, this thing in movies and, and they do this here as well. The, the easiest thing to do when you're getting shot at is you just kind of like put your arms up around your head and you crouch yeah. down a little bit and then, no bullets will ever touch you as long as you make that move. Right. You just, you just cover your head, you duck 
like you're one of the little kids in Jurassic Park in the kitchen during the Velociraptor scene, and yeah. you'll be fine. Yep. Um, one other thing I kind of want to point out. Um, they kind of does, it seems a little weird. So Howard Hughes, he's this brilliant aviator, really smart guy. He couldn't have figured out a rudder, like really. Like putting the fin on the helmet, it's cool. It's, I mean, that's iconic. I mean, it makes right. the character look super cool. Um, pretty sure Howard Hughes could have figured that out. So that's, right. like, that's a minor the, thing. Minor. That's the one thing that he couldn't figure out with the jetpack, right? Yeah. yeah. Minor. That okay. that doesn't really bother me all that much. Let's go ahead and just get into least favorite scene. Then, uh, what is your least favorite scene or scene that maybe? you would skip, you would go get up, refill your beverage uh, when it comes on and come back to it. I, so like this could have fit, I guess, in the last segment, but just looking through my notes, uh, the one thing that I wrote down, it's pretty early in the film too, but like he punches a, a fed. Okay. And you know, the yeah. show that they're the movie, they call it a fed you know, FBI is a federal agent. He punches <laughs> in the face and nothing happens. <laughs> like nothing. Imagine just being a dude punching a special agent in the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the jaw, and then you just go about your day. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like it should probably have been a little uh, more drastic than that. Um, I, I'm going to say my my least favorite scene, and it's it, it's kind of minor. Um, we get to the end, the handoff scene towards the end before they get under the big Zeppelin chase. Just that whole handoff requires a bit of a stretch in believability. Um, so Sinclair had to know that his cover was going to be gone forever and was definitely compromised. Like, it, it just seems weird that he's sort of okay with that at, at different points. And then out of nowhere, Eddie develops this weird sense of morality, like literally out of nowhere, that doesn't fit at all with what we know about the mob. Like, at what point do the mob strike you as star-spangled banner, flag-waving, like... American to the core, red blooded kind of guys. Like they hated the government. Yeah. They hate everything about the government. They hate the laws. They hate everything about it. Like it didn't, it's, it kind of, and this is mostly just from all the research that we did for the Goodfellas episode. Like yeah. that to me, just like that, that kind of doesn't work. So that's, well, like, that's like a minor piece of it though. I mean, there's, even, that's, that's even, the minor uh, piece. To be honest, like, you know, specifically, like, their top tier of membership required pure Sicilian blood. You know, like yeah. you, you could so you'd be more been... loyal to your homeland than you would to the, the nation yeah. you live in for sure. Yeah. yeah. So that part was just like, a, that's like a minor part for that. But then all of a sudden, so, so Eddie kind of flips on him and then he says something in German and this whole platoon of Germans just comes out of nowhere, which, okay. So if he has them, why does he need the mobsters? It seems like they're probably a little more intimidating than the mobsters. You could send them home. Like you don't need them anymore. You don't need them knowing that you're actually a secret Nazi. Like that was a little bit weird to me. And how do they sneak all their gear and all their uniforms in? Like, where did they change? Like they come over however they came over, but they've got the uniform and the guns and their luggage. Like how did, how did that all work? And then where yeah. you hide a flipping Zeppelin? Like with the giant swastika on it, it just rises yeah. up over the back. Like nobody saw that. Like nobody, no. nobody knew that was there. It just, they had it you know, at Yankee Stadium. Um, you know, they just kept it there for a little bit, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, know. and just and just got the hydrogen to fill it. Like I, don't, I don't know. Like that minor, minor stuff. Um, but that would probably like that would be what I would call my least favorite scene. So we're gonna move on. You know. For 
the extended podcast universe on the show we call Rob's Reviews, one of the things that we were looking at are these films that have really left long-term lasting impacts on us, things that uh, you know we just really, really love uh, and love to revisit. And um, part of the reason that, you know, Eric and I have this list that we just keep of, of stuff that we, we want to get to on this show. And uh, I kind of chose this specifically <laughs> because Matt had me watching some really, really bad movies all of January. We, we covered. Um, so I had to watch Matrix Resurrections twice, once just to watch it and then a second time to, to watch it for the show. So I've seen that twice. And then we did uh, Batman and Robin together and uh the director's cut of daredevil eric have you seen daredevil i can't remember if you've seen that or not i i've i've seen maybe 20 minutes of it on television like like it's 20 more minutes than you should have it's terrible yeah daredevil right yep yeah that one uh don't don't ever see it it's it's beyond terrible um, so I've been watching some really, really bad <laughs> movies uh, for the sake of podcast this month. And uh, we kind of picked this one because I, w- I haven't seen it in a really long time. And I really wanted to just kind of have some fun and, and uh, watch something that was just a, a total blast to uh, to get into. Um, sidebar, Matt and I were invited to uh, jump on our friend Harrison's channel uh, on the Basement Binge. Uh, he was doing uh, his second go round of animation hall of fave. So if you're into animated films and can appreciate animated films, make sure you check out his show. Uh, he's got some really, really good stuff. He does a really good job of, uh, of contextualizing things and doing some behind the scenes details on, on a lot of things that I didn't know about some of the films that he covers. Uh, but we covered all three films of how to train your dragon. And uh, those have been already been recorded, but they're likely not going to have been released by the time this episode releases. Uh, but I, I did tell the guys, cause I usually kind of keep this a little bit of a secret, what we're working on. And, uh, I did let the guys know while we were recording, uh, what the next episode and the entry of the EPU was going to be. And Matt immediately <laughs> started flipping me off over the uh, video chat we were using to record because, uh, he was so bummed out that he wouldn't get a chance to, uh, to jump in on this because he really enjoys this movie so much. Cause it is really just a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, he was, he was definitely upset that, uh, that we're covering this and, and yeah. not giving him a chance to do it at some wow. point. Um, two because two, this movie two, is just fun. Two things. Number one, you should have invited him on to do this. That would have been great. <laughs> it's and his channel. Know. I mean, number two, I just have to say, I've not seen all of the How to Train Your Dragon movies. I just saw the first. Oh, one. you should. You and should. I will say that, like, okay, like, I've grown up my entire life with cats, and whoever animated the dragon in the first one, I'm sure it's probably similar for the, the other two, but, like, the first one, the, the animator of the, the little dragon clearly owned cats at some point in their life. The thing acts exactly like a little asshole cat would act yep. it's it's extremely funny it's it's really it's super entertaining i was just telling my wife about this actually tonight we were talking about it because she just bought my daughter a little stuffed like mini dragon thing um from a store at work but um i was telling her about it and i said the exact same thing so like we're gonna get into it pretty soon to, to, to see it because she the, my kid loves our cats but it's hilarious. Um, the first one, if if any of the if anything like the first one at all is translated to two and three, then s- definitely get into it because I'm I'm gonna be checking it out myself. Um, yeah, hilarious. I definitely recommend the first one is uh, currently not streaming anywhere. The second one weirdly is on Netflix. It's the only one that's on Netflix. 
the third one not streaming anywhere either. So uh, just go buy these because you're going to want to see them again and again, and they're definitely worth it. So quick plug for a Harrison show on the Basement Binge. Uh, if you enjoy Matt Goes to the Movies, uh, obviously you you enjoy listening to Matt, and I'm uh, fortunate enough to be able to join him uh, frequently. Uh, so if you enjoy listening to our banter, uh, go check out the Basement Binge uh, for three great episodes with Matt and I uh, jumping on with Harrison as well on uh, How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, but yeah, so uh, <laughs> it was it was actually a lot of fun, and I know that um, I know those guys are both looking forward to uh, to this. And, and Harrison has not seen the Rocketeers, so uh, hopefully he's gotten a chance to check it out and then uh, check out this episode because I I know uh, that this would be the kind of thing he would enjoy uh, for sure. But did, um, did Harrison live in Eastern Europe during like the early nineties? <laughs> uh, Harrison's a lot younger than Matt and I. So this was, oh. this was not something he would have grown up with. Um, but uh, this is something that I grew up with and something you grew up with. And, and part of the thing that makes a film iconic makes a film classic are quotable lines. So we're going to move into our next segment, uh, notable and quotable. And uh, there's, there's definitely some really, really good ones from this movie. There's not a lot, but the ones that are here are fantastic. There's a really, really obvious one. It's my favorite line from this movie. Um, it's everybody's favorite line from this movie. It's when Cliff tries the outfit on for the first time, the iconic helmet, and, and he's got the whole thing together. He's got the jacket. He's got the, the rocket on. And he looks at PV and he says, how do I look? And PV responds with? Like a hood ornament. It's the best line from this movie. It's iconic. <laughs> it's classic. Everybody who has ever seen this movie, it does not matter if you've only seen it once and it was 30 years ago. You know that line. You remember that line. This um, has been like a, like a family quote for us too. Like we've, yeah. we've, we've grown up with like our parents saying this and us saying it to them, you know, any yeah. opportunity that, that was fitting this, like we grew up with this line for sure. Yes. Yep. So definitely the the obvious entry and notable and quotable. Uh, a couple other ones that I really enjoy from this. Uh, I love when Cliff is trying to explain to Jenny uh, what is actually going on. And, and he tells her, prepare yourself for a shock. I'm the Rocketeer. And she goes, the Rock-a-who? <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh, you know, he thinks he's about to just lay this whole thing yeah. on her, and she's going to be super impressed. And he she's like, it's a, "What?" It's a, just totally deflates his balloon. <laughs> yep, yep, goes absolutely nowhere. Um, I, he goes to pick her up very early into the movie for their date, and uh, the the kind of the house mom or whoever she is uh, says, "You know my rules: no gentleman allowed inside no after six p.m." And he responds, "But I'm not a gentleman." Yep but I'm not a gentleman. So uh, that's, that's, that's a fun gangster. one. That's really gangster yep. too. It's yeah, that's a pretty clever line. And then towards the end of the film, PV's reading the newspaper and it says, uh, film fans were saddened by the news that actor Neville Sinclair was killed in a tragedy when flaming debris fell on his touring car. That's terrible. That was a nice car. <laughs> that's really funny. And really, PV, I enjoy that PV one too. delivers that so well too. Like his the, the oh, actor, it's fantastic. He's he's been in a couple of things too, and I don't have his name right in front of me, but um, he does Alan a good Arkin job with that. Yeah, yeah, Alan Arkin. That's right. Um, he he does play that character very well. That's that's a good one for sure. Yeah, so that's that's a pretty enjoyable one. Uh, Eric, did you have any other um, notable and quotable lines that you would like to share? Uh, really only one that you didn't and it's you know it's it's like a little bit lame but to me 
because they say it so often. Uh, whenever stuff starts to go really bad during the air show, um, the guy who's like the MC, but he's like in charge of like the airfield. Oh yeah, yep, yep. I mean, it's, it's all just, part of the it's show. All part of the show. Like he's just trying to reassure all the fans because this this dude is only worried about not losing money. Like he's only worried about getting paid and not losing any money. And so he's trying to keep people there, but like sort of semi keep them safe. But at the same time, like if people have to die, you know, he's not really that worried about it. It's just more about money for him. But the fact that he's just, it's all part of the show and he's in his crappy, you know, tweed suit and his, his, you know, bowler hat or fedora, whatever he's wearing with his bad mustache. Like it's just so, it's so iconic of the time period and you know the fact that he's just saying that over and over again, like he's he's almost like a like a pro wrestling uh, promoter when he's saying that. You know he, um, it's funny you mentioned that because you know he kind of looks like, and this is going back to like late '80s, early '90s when it was still the WWF. He looks a little bit like Paul Bearer, if you remember him. I don't. That's that used to that. So he was the guy that used to carry around the Undertaker's urn. Oh my God. He does kind of look uh, like him a little bit. He does. If you just change, yeah. if you take off the hat and you change. Oh man. Wow. Does kind of look that's, like him a little bit. Uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a good notable and quotable. I, I can't believe I actually missed that because that definitely is, is a line that I distinctly remember uh, from this movie. So um going to move on to another segment uh, that has been a part of, uh, of every episode we've done so far in one way or another, the F-bomb-a-thon. Uh, Eric, go ahead and guess how many F-bombs are there in this movie? All right, so this is a first. Um, actually, I shouldn't say that because you did misspeak earlier. You said this is our first non-rated R movie. Gone in 60 seconds. It was oh, no, that was PG-13. Yeah, 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 you're right. So, But this is the first PG movie to be on the, the expanded podcast universe. Uh, but the you know it, with that being PG, there are zero exactly zero. There are zero. Uh, yep. It was it was rated PG because it contained tobacco depictions. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, and they that's might about have said, it. They might have said "damn" a couple of times. Maybe, yeah. Um, so another thing that makes a film classic and iconic, memorable, the kinds of films that stick with you for a long period of time. Uh, one of the things that always threads those things together is you have to have a classic villain. You can't have a great hero without a great villain to measure him against, uh, measure him or her, I should say against. Uh, so having a great villain really, really makes a difference. So, uh, this is a new segment. We're going to call it villainy index. (laughs) <laughs> and we're going to talk about uh, Neville Sinclair a little bit. And uh, Eric, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go first. So here's our scale uh, on a scale of one to 10 with 10 being, I mean, if you have to think the most iconic uh, villain in, in Darth film Vader. history, there's one answer and one answer only. And if it's not Darth Vader, then you don't know what you're talking about. And it's just, yeah. you know, everybody can have their own opinions, but if you don't agree that Vader's the best villain in, in film history, then you're just wrong. <laughs> it's you're just, just, you, accept yeah, it, you can have your opinion. You're just yeah. wrong. You're objectively <laughs> wrong. Uh, so he's 10. And I'm going to say King Koopa from the live action Mario Brothers is a one. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> you didn't prepare me. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the scale. Um, <laughs> where do you rank uh, Neville Sinclair as portrayed by Timothy Dalton? Oh, my God. All right. So 
I would say two. However, I don't want to because the key is he's dangerous. Like he's a like influential dude, right? He's got money. He's got connections. He's got a network. Can we also talk about the fact that he just apparently keeps chloroform in his pocket at all times when he's on a date, just in case he needs it. Cause he pulled that out to use on Jenny at the, at the dinner they were at like real fast, like out of nowhere, like that thing just came out. Like he didn't have Wait. to like go find the, the bottle, dump it out. Do you, do you not? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Um, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Cause you're actually like a human being and you have feelings and you know, Right. fiber. Um, so yeah. he will, just he um, just pulls this thing out of nowhere. Like he had that ready, and he's he his technique on it was practiced. Like he's done this before. I'm gonna I'm gonna give him a three it, it, because like as an individual, if you separate all other things, cut all ties, as a human being, he's barely a wet noodle. So like he's not dangerous, but like as a a character, as a an influence he could facilitate serious problems, you know, because of his money and his connections. So like he, he kind of rises above the wet noodle of, of a one or a two. So I'll give him a three. I mean, he is, first of all, the name we've talked about this. We, we said it earlier, but the name Neville Sinclair, if you were to name a douche, like I would just pick like, um, let me just write Neville Sinclair. Hi, my name is Neville Sinclair. I'm going to slap that sticker name tag right on a douche. That's it. Yeah. Um, I, I actually think he's a little bit better maybe than you do. Um, I think the fact that he's, he's a, um, a secret Nazi infiltrated into Hollywood society. Uh, I think automatically that gives him a, a little bit extra um, because, you know, we just love to hate Nazis. Like that's just, we love to hate them. They're so hateable. They're so punchable. I think that uh, there's some things working against him, you know, using the the cheesy lines from his movies and thinking that she wouldn't. Um, he, and he's obviously done that before. Like you can see how easy and practiced oh, yeah. that came out too. like, yeah, I mean, total yeah, at some point Chris Hansen was going to catch him with a six or a Mike's hard lemonade thinking he was going to make yeah. it up with like a 16 year old. Yeah. yeah, very likely. Yeah, um, that that's probably like later on in, in life for him that um, I could definitely see that. Um you know, he, he does kind of hold his own in the action scenes. You know, he's uh, he's not afraid of uh, shooting. He's not afraid to throw a punch. In fact, he throws a better punch than our hero does. Um, and he's, he's probably unnecessarily um, confident in his abilities because dude puts the rocket on and jumps out the window without even asking for so much as a tutorial or like, Hey, what does this button do? Like if if you're going to play Madden with a friend for the first time, like you can at least give him a, a, like a rundown on like, all right, here's the pass button. Here's the, here's how you, yeah. Which Uh, which grenade. Yeah. 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 Which, which one's the uh, aim down sights button. Like he doesn't even bother. He just like, all right, well I'll see you and I'll figure it out later. This is a thing that could burn your sack right off of your body. And he doesn't even ask one question. Nope. Just, all right, I'm jumping. So, um, scale of one to 10. It is Timothy Dalton and he was James Bond for a short period of time. Yeah. Uh, And the fact that somebody who's portrayed James Bond can be kind of this sleazy, but effective villain. Um, you know, just on the, I'm going to give him a five. 
you know, I, I got him kind of right in the middle. Um, you changed my mind. I'm going to give him a four. I'll retract my previous three. He's a four. Yeah. He's because yeah. he does. I was going to say like, he doesn't really have a manifesto, but he does sort of have a, he does give a speech. He does talk about, yeah. you know, I mean, he's and stuff. He's, he's a Nazi, but I don't think we ever, and I think this was really a symptom of, of when this film was made. Like we didn't necessarily need our villains to have a reason for their villainy. We just accepted they were villains and kind of moved on. I think, I think having villains that we understand their motivations better is much more of a recent kind of expectation in film. So, you know, I, I can't, it's, you can't hold him to 22 standards in, in 91, you know, like it's just, that's not fair. No. So, well, there was no origin um, story for Neville Sinclair. You know, you're not going to get a no. Christopher Nolan trilogy for about him. So um, I'd watch it. Um, so some other things that make a film iconic. So outside of the great lines, great characters, great villains, uh, great music also has a tendency of being <clears throat> one of those things that sticks with you about a film and can really make a moment seem like a moment as opposed to something that's just happening on screen in front of you. So something that we've done in every episode so far that we've covered is we've talked about the music at one point or another. Uh, and then we've actually got this next segment we're going to, that we go into, it's called Eric's extended podcast universe extended playlist and for each of our previous episodes eric has uh gone through and curated uh a series of of songs that he combines into a spotify playlist uh that you can search for um and those are, are all linked in the previous shows uh that we've done um so it's a combination of, of great music used in the film effectively. And then just uh, if you like that, here's some other things that are kind of in a similar vibe or similar artists uh, that will that will appeal to you. Now, this film is completely a score. There, it's, it's an orchestral score. There's uh, there's not any, you know background music per se outside of the the score of the film so eric what have you uh what have you got for us uh because this will be a little bit different than the previous yeah. ones you put together so this is another first i mean we've got our first pg movie we've got our first disney movie i want to say it's our first non-f-bomb movie but like on 60 seconds it was pg-13 so they could have gotten away with the one f-bomb um however this was tough. We talked about this. We talked about this when we first uh, started talking about like, Hey, what are we going to do next? And we said like, okay, once we settled on this, it was like, Oh, what kind of music am I going to do for this? <laughs> because yeah. you know, I try to, I try to stick to, you know, if it's a period piece, I, I want to try to focus on a little bit of music from the time period and include some stuff that is actually in the film and, or in the official soundtrack. So this was tough. Like you said, it was uh, an orchestral scored film. There were like two things that I wrote down while watching it that really were, um, they were cool. Like there was a clarinet solo that they were, they were watching on TV uh, that I thought was really cool. And so I was really, I was desperate for inspiration and I was trying to just pay attention to stuff throughout my days. And all of a sudden something hit me Um I decided that because this is like, this is a, a ultimately, if you really boil it down, this is a superhero slash hopeless romantic kind of love story, right? This dude, do you think he would have done any of this stuff if he didn't have a girl that he was trying to, you know, 
impress. Probably not. Um, okay. He probably would have saved. Uh, he would have saved the the clown pilot at the beginning, but outside of that, he wouldn't have done anything in any of the right. rest of it. So, like, he's not going to strap on a rocket pack and do all the stuff he's doing unless he's got a girl that he's trying to impress. So, I I I took the the sort of the romantic you know love motivation element, and again with the comic book thing, like it, to be honest there is a weird darkness to this movie for, for it being a Disney movie. There is some kind of sort of darkness. And so I, I really just felt, I heard a song. Um, it's called freak like me. And it was on a TV show I was watching. Um, maybe it was a movie. I don't know, but either way it just, all of a sudden it all clicked and I figured out this needs to be uh, swanky and sexy and spooky all at the same time. Like there was just, there's the three S's. And so I created what I thought was like just a lot of really good, like distorted guitar and some stuff that is like, you know, to keep this PG 13, this some really good love making music in here too, along with some blues. There's uh, there's some blues elements to it as well. Cause it just sort of fits with what we're talking about. Um, with this stuff, but there's some really good, it's, it's not anything you, I promise you've never heard a play like this playlist like this before. Um, please check it out. It's I'm, I'm actually really proud of this one. Um, I listened to it probably four or five times after I made it. It's really good. There's, uh, there's some white stripes on here. Um, there's black keys, the kills, uh, Greta Van Fleet, Kasabian, uh, which is like a British rock band, Elbow, same thing. Radiohead, Zeppelin, Massive Attack, uh, Imagine Dragons, um, Bad Company, Goldfrap. It's it's really eclectic, I would say. Um, so you, you think back to some of what we've done so far. And by the way, if you're interested, uh, these are available for each episode uh, that we've done so far. So we've done Fight Club, we did Goodfellas, The Big Lebowski, uh, we followed that with Gone in 60 Seconds, which is a, a gem that a lot of people have kind of forgotten about. Uh, rec- our most recent episode was on the Boondock Saints. Uh, there are uh, podcast, or sorry, playlists available for each of those. Uh, and you find those by going to Spotify. And uh, you can also click the link. Matt has those at the bottom of each of the show notes episodes. And what is the way that somebody can find this particular one, Eric, if they're going to go on Spotify and just search for it, what is the name of this playlist? Because there was really only one obvious option for a name for this particular playlist. So I try to name them based on something from the film that makes sense. And uh, they all start. If you're looking, just look MGTTM. This Matt goes to the movies, EPU extended podcast universe. Started off your search like that, um, but this one is called "Like a Hood Ornament." Because what else could it be? It couldn't have been anything else. So we're going to move on. So uh, definitely check those out. It's a very eclectic mix. I really like it. I I, I listen to uh, actually a lot of these uh, playlists when I'm not listening to episodes of Matt Goes to the Movies or uh, The Basement Binge. Uh, this is what I'm listening to if I'm if I'm in the mood for some music. So we're going to go into uh, some behind-the-scenes details. Uh, it's it's definitely something we always enjoy getting into, some just little features and facts, uh, Easter eggs, things like that. Um, Billy Campbell and Jennifer Conley actually dated for a time as a result of working together on this film. Uh, director Joe John, Yeah, good. Outstanding for him. Uh, <laughs> director for him. Joe Johnston was in favor of this as he thought it would lead to better method acting uh, for their on-screen chemistry. So, Hell yeah. Yep. 
Uh, Rick Baker, who some of you might know is Rick Baker Monster Maker, has done uh, pretty much, if it's an iconic uh, monster makeup, uh, he's been involved in it. Uh, this guy is is a major, major player in visual effects, uh, makeup effects, monster effects in Hollywood. I mean, he's done, like, uh, if, if it's been really cool and, and important in Hollywood, he's probably done it. Uh, he was the one that designed the prosthetics used by the Lothar actor, Tiny Ron Taylor, who we talked about earlier, who was actually drafted into the ABA and had a short career as a professional basketball player before jumping into movies. You've because actually seen him in more stuff giant. than you realize. He's a he giant. was just a giant. Yes. Yeah, you've seen him in more stuff than you realize. You should check his IMDb page out when you get a chance. Um, <clears throat> visual effects, they were handled by none other than Industrial Light and Magic. We talked about that a little bit earlier. The Zeppelin explosion effect, I, I read somewhere that that effect alone cost $400,000 to produce. So Ooh. that was, hopefully it worked for you because it was, it was pricey. This film actually opened at number four uh, for, the, for when it first came out, uh, following Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is a movie you and I have seen a million times. Yeah. Uh, City Slickers, which is a great, <laughs> funny, funny Billy movie. Crystal. You, yes. you kind of forget about it. And a film called Dying Young that I'm not familiar with at all. I didn't do any research on what that was. But this opened up at number four behind it. The, um, at different points of production, and even pre-production, uh, this was planned as a potential trilogy. And the disappointing box office results literally killed any chance that that was ever going to happen. Disney Jr., however, did release a series in 2019 following Kit Sicord, the seven-year-old granddaughter of Cliff, who somehow gets the rocket, uh, was well-received. I've never seen any of them, but it was well-received and only lasted one season, uh, even though people seem to like it. Um, here's something that I don't know if I even knew or not uh, prior to working on this episode. There is a sequel in the works for The Rocketeer that is intended to head to Disney+. Plus. Now, there's some different things I've read about the script. There's some, there's some conflicting information that's out there as far as who it's going to focus on, but the pilot is either going to be a black female or possibly a former Tuskegee airman um, that will have the rocket, and they're going to move it to more of a Cold War setting uh, with our hero trying to keep the Ruskies from getting the jetpack and possibly having similar uh, kind of results to what we were trying to keep uh, it from the Nazis for. So uh, that sounds kind of interesting. Uh, worries me a little bit that it's a straight-to-Disney Plus adaption, but could be a lot of fun. Um, uh, yeah. Last sure, one that I've got. If, the... if we're not going to beat up on a bunch of Nazis, let's beat up on some Ruskies. Why not? Yeah, yeah. There is, uh, in that Zeppelin scene I mentioned, you can see the Hollywood sign, but it says Hollywood Land. That's not uh, a mistake, or that's not alternate history. The original Hollywood sign did say Hollywood Land. Uh, that was the original sign. Uh, obviously, it didn't uh, get knocked down uh, with an exploding Nazi Zeppelin. Um, it's actually a much longer story, not really anywhere near as interesting, so I'm not going to bore you with those details, but that was actually something that was there originally. Uh, Eric, do you have any other behind-the-scenes details to share? Oh, yeah. So um, in the very beginning of the film, Cliff is flying this tiny little plane, <laughs> and it's like... It, that thing is cramped. I mean, how does he fit in that thing? I'm, like, I am mystified how he fits in there. So, like, if you're familiar with, like, the, the Red Bull Flugtog, you know, any of the, the stunt plane stuff that, that is uh, promulgated on um, social media, YouTube, it's mostly, it's on uh, TV once in a while. But we're talking about wicked fast, 
highly maneuverable stunt planes. It's actually called the GB R2 racer, which is named for GB is, is for the Granville brothers. There were five of them. Um, but <laughs> the R1 and R2 racer were described as, and I quote, essentially the largest available engine with the smallest possible airframes behind them. <laughs> they were, <laughs> yes. So they were described as insanely dangerous. Like the tiniest little hair of adjustment on the stick would cause it to move dramatically. So like they, they used to, they called them, what was it? it was like a death machine or a coffin or something like that. Like they called it something very, very scary. And, you had to be pretty much a maniac to, to even sit in one, let alone be good at it. And so like the, the fact that he was flying this, it, it's basically like a cockpit and wings and nothing else. Like there's the start of the movie. You just look at this. How is this thing real? Like there's no, there's like no tail on the end of it. It's just this giant engine and a cockpit like his head, the, like the glass of the cockpit is just enough for his head to stick up into it's crazy. Like you can't see crap. There's no way. And to be honest, the size of your testicles to, to fly something like that. I don't know how he fits himself and his balls into that thing at the same time. I just don't, I don't know how he flies with it, but it's nuts. Um, but it's a real thing and it's extremely dangerous. And that's what he was flying. Um, ton of awards. I just feel like for some reason this, movie just doesn't get the respect it deserves so i want to give it some street cred here well i said this yeah i said this earlier like when i when i told matt like that we were covering this he was like really bummed out because this is such a great movie he was like i'm gonna go rewatch that right now um how many people do you know that like don't like this movie or like hey um let's watch the rocketeer you're like okay let's do that like who would say no to that well so like i only know either people who loved it or people who haven't seen it so like there's, you know, there's your, your, podcast. right. So, yeah. you know, the, again, the Academy of science fiction, fantasy and, and horror films, um, got a Saturn award for uh, best costumes. They actually won that. Um, they were nominated for the best uh, DVD and Blu-ray special edition release in 2012 nominated for the best sci-fi film in 92. Uh, we talked about best supporting actress uh, nomination for Jennifer Connelly smoke show. Uh, nominated for the best special effects, uh, Ken Ralston with ILM. Um, and the Hugo Awards in 92, nominated for best dramatic presentation. And uh, in 2011, they actually got a nomination in the Satellite Awards for best youth DVD. Just wanted to throw those things out there so that you know that we're not just talking about some stupid picture of our childhood. Um, <laughs> did, you, did you look into, moving on from the awards, did you look into any of the... Um, alternate people to, uh, actors to play different roles. So alternate castings is something that is a very popular segment here on uh, Rob's reviews. And I've got a couple of them for you. Right. So Cliff, on, I, I wrote them down. So I'm ready. So cliff could have been Kevin Costner. Yes. Matthew Modine. Uh-huh. Those two were heavily considered. Um, I could have, uh, I could definitely see either of them here. Uh, I'm going to assume Kevin Costner was not available because he was doing the the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves film we talked about. They prior. were they were both unavailable, actually. Yep. Yes. Other options for Cliff: Dennis Quaid, Kurt uh-huh. Russell, Bill Paxton, who really uh-huh. thought he was close, 
Um, Emilio could, Estevez. Bill Paxton could have done it. I think Bill Paxton. I think Kurt Russell could have done it. I think Quaid yeah. could have done it. I think I don't know if I see Emilio Estevez, and I think I, I see him I just don't. as too comedic. Yeah, I don't see him in this. He's not. He's, he doesn't have the, the like the serious like hero chops. As far as yeah, like I think he's too funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, Johnny Depp was rumored to be considered. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that was um, that was Disney's uh, favorite, actually. Yeah. Uh, and Vincent D'Onofrio also turned it down, turned but, it down. uh, yeah. yeah, I, Billy Campbell, I like in this, um, he's not really done a ton of other work that you would have likely seen, uh, after this movie. So that's like, I, I was trying to think of where else I've seen him and I really came up with almost nothing, uh, far less options for Jenny Blake. Uh, Jennifer Conley was, was decided on fairly early. Um, Sherilyn Fenn, Kelly Preston, uh, Diane Lane, who a lot of people recognize, Ooh. and Elizabeth McGovern. Outside of Diane Lane, the other three actresses are primarily TV. Uh, they're not really as much in film. Most of their work's been in TV. So if you've I not really seen the shows them. they've been on, you wouldn't. Yeah, you wouldn't recognize them outside if you've not if you're not familiar with the shows they've been on. PV. Uh, before they went with Alan Arkin, uh, Lloyd Bridges actually turned it down before Alan Arkin accepted, and I think he's fantastic in the role. I've got yeah. some alternate castings for Neville Sinclair for you. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy Irons, who could have definitely done it. Yeah. And, and Charles Dance. Now, if you don't necessarily know who that is, when I tell you where you know him from, you'll immediately go, oh, yeah. Uh, Charles Dance was Game of Thrones' Tywin Lannister. Uh, definitely could have played the role of Neville Sinclair. I would have liked any of those three, but I ultimately think Timothy Dalton was, was very good in the role. Uh, Eddie Valentine. When the character was written, he was actually written with Joe Pesci in mind. Joe Pesci, yep. He turned it down. But he turned it down. Yeah. And it ends up going to another good fella. <clears throat> well, uh, honestly, I think it worked out perfectly because I, I don't Works know if I well. would have. To see Joe Pesci in a movie like that, I I kind of would have been disappointed. I would have been like, where's where's the pistol whipping? Where's the, the F-bombs? Yeah. It would have been it would have been a kind of a different role for him. I think I think uh Polly is um he just fits that he just fits that role a little bit better Paul Savino was born to be a, a mob boss mobster mafia guy yep that's it so we're going to move on to our next segment uh rewatchability rating and pantheon points so here at matt goes to the movies uh when we're ranking something we rank it out of five reels well when we're talking about movies that have really meant something over a very long period of time um a, a one to five real rating system, you know, just doesn't work when we're cherry picking our favorites. Um, so, so these are all five real movies for us if we're, if we're ranking them that way. So we have to come up with something a little bit different. And here at Rob's reviews, this is kind of how we use it. So we give it a rewatchability ranking. It's a scale of one to five, five being, I would watch it start to finish every time locked in Four, I put it on and play with my phone in between scenes. I love three. This is background noise while doing housework. Two, it's a film I enjoy, but I don't go out of my way to watch it again. One, it doesn't hold up the way I remember it. Uh, Eric, go ahead and lead us off. Where do you rank this on our rewatchability rating? All right, so I'm going to say, and and by the way, for listeners who are maybe new to the show, I don't prepare this ahead of time. I, I really do. Like, I prefer to shoot from the hip. I want to be spontaneous and organic and authentic. So I don't think about this stuff, but 
in the moment. So uh, my first thought was three and a half, but I'm going to actually say 3.75 because there are some scenes like I, I, this is not just background noise while I'm doing side missions around my house. I would a hundred percent sit down and, and be locked in to certain scenes. And honestly, this is one of those movies where I would find myself watching scenes that I'm not a hundred percent like loving, but it's because it's, it's only a, a two minute uh, segue into the next scene that I really do love. So like I, I would probably yeah. play with my phone. I wouldn't necessarily get up and like gather up the garbage and take it out to the curb. During well, you wouldn't week. just do that on your own anyways. Well, only once a week. So <laughs> the I had a, a chore that took me more than a full minute to do this, but I'm not going to 100% be locked in. I will say that at some point, like when, when my daughter is old enough to really appreciate it, it's like, this is definitely a movie that I'm going to watch with her and, and you know laugh yeah. at her and explain things. You know, like this is something that daddy watched when he was really young and you know, like this guy was really scary and I'm, I'm hoping that she's going to be just as scared as that goon as I was <laughs> because it really, like I did have nightmares about that guy before, but like, you know, it, it, I'm hoping that she's not exposed to anything that's scarier than that by the time that she's the age that I was when I watched this the first time. She could be so, your thunder buddy for it. Yes. And you know, F you thunder, etc. But like the, yeah, that's so three, seven, five, if not a four, a solid four. Yeah, so I think this is another one. Um, much like Gone in 60 Seconds, where if you haven't seen it in a while, you're locked in. If you've seen it somewhat recently, um, you're probably not as locked in. So it's not it's not a five for me. The funny thing about this is it actually is a film I enjoy, but don't go out of my way to watch it because I haven't seen it in like 20 years. Um, and, I, and I'm thinking, that, like when we talked about doing this, I, I found myself going, why haven't I watched this movie more recently than that? Like, this is really a lot of fun. I really enjoy this. Like, well, why have I waited this long to rewatch it's, this? It's accessibility. Like it just recently became a Disney plus thing. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I, I think you're probably in range when you say 3.75, I, I think there's the, the scenes where the adventure itself is happening are fantastic. You're not going to do anything else while those are on, you know, the scenes with Neville and Jenny together, mostly creepy and I don't need any of them. Um, you know, especially if you've seen it somewhat recently. So I'm going to give this a four. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's definitely in that range where it, this is a dangerous movie to put on. If you are side questing because you'll get pulled in and, and find yourself be like, you know, I think I left the iron on. Uh, it's like, I, I think I was supposed to switch laundry over like an hour ago. Um, so this is a dangerous movie to do housework with in the background because you will get pulled in. So uh, I'm going to call this a four, which brings us to our, our next segment, which is kind of, uh, you know, unique to these films that, that we really love uh, Pantheon points. So, Eric, you can you can rank this however you feel comfortable. We're we're literally just making up like ranking systems uh, for these movies that we cover. Uh, if you feel confident saying it's in a top fifty or a top one hundred or top ten or wherever you would rank this film, uh, or you can even make up your own rankings. So for me, 
I don't think if I wrote out my 50 favorite films of all time, I don't know if this one quite makes my 50 favorite. My 100 favorite, I feel pretty confident it's somewhere in there. Um, it is, without a doubt, top four favorite adventure movies with Nazis as the enemy. Definitely top four for that. I like that. Um, yeah. Um, so that it's definitely in that pantheon for me. Um, it's it's probably top three uh, comic book movies that don't don't come from a comic book I've ever read. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I think that's probably kind of. I, I would also say this is in my top at least top fifteen movies. I can't believe they haven't rebooted already or sequeled oh, or done man. something with. Right, it's, like it's just ripe for the picking. Like top fifteen, why? Hollywood. Why have they not done something with this sooner? Like I said, there is a sequel planned, but man, these things can there these is, things can end up in developmental hell for a long time. There's there's there a lot is, of things uh, can happen. Boy, is this ever just ready for some some real Michael Bay, James Cameron pimp out Jerry Bruckheimer, make it freaking huge? You know, yeah, it's it's there. It exists. Yeah. So, uh, pantheons, Eric. Where do where um, do you where do you feel like you can rank this? This is top two superhero movies involving jetpacks, and I would say it's probably really flirting with top fifty for me. Like if yeah. I because it you know what the problem with this one is it's super easy to forget, and it's not because it's not good. It's it's. Probably well, it doesn't people. end up on any great lists of movies. Like you'll yeah, never find this on anybody's list. Nobody no, ever, and I don't understand that. That people don't talk about, but when you do bring it up, if you do bring it up, everybody agrees with you. Like hell yeah, this is sweet. I love Rocketeer because, like, and, and honestly, we talked about the, the the leather jacket, right? Like that's that's like Funkmaster Flex, so so sweet. But the helmet, how freaking rad was that helmet? Even oh yeah, he did. He did. Legitimately, it looked like a hood ornament. He, the helmet was sweet. It had the little slots, you know, in the eyes and the mouth, and like the the um, the the way that it swept rearward with a, a rudder, you know, in the back, the fin part. It just it looked so sweet, and that's like that's part of like the spooky thing because like you know if you imagine being a child. And all of a sudden that face popped in your window, you know, of your bedroom, like you'd crack. Yourself. Oh yeah. Like that's scary. So like, that's part of like my little inspiration for the, the thing. Like it's a little bit spooky. It's a little bit dark, but it's still really sweet. It's very swanky. Like he's definitely, you know, kind of got a fifties almost, you know, he's jumping ahead a, a decade or so uh, like biker car guy vibe to him with that. Yeah. But it's, it's, I mean, it's just, it's such a cool ass costume. It really is. And so I think that it would, if I, if I had the full function of my brain, I would a hundred percent include this in my top 50, uh, you know, and I might exclude some other ones that are probably more talked about, but like, this is, you know, I, I think that it's just been kind of done dirty by, um, you know, a lack of PR, not necessarily bad PR, just a lack of it. Yeah, I, I think this is one of those ones that um, not enough people remember, and, and it doesn't get discussed for it being the fun that it is. So 
that's going to do it for the Rocketeer. Uh, but before we go, want to just make sure listeners know all of the things that are going on here at Matt Goes to the Movies. The big show is covering something kind of different for the channel. Um, top 100 video games. We've already uh, sent out the first 25. So, of course, Matt, as you know, uh, is, is hosting. I was fortunate enough to be able to jump on with him. His son, Brandon, was able to join us as well. Uh, it's kind of interesting, some of the games that are the same on both of their lists. Um, and there's definitely ones that have appeared on my list, just in different places. Um, it's uh, it's kind of fun to see. Uh, by the way, Matt is completely wrong with his placement of Goldeneye. He has it in his bottom 25 of the top 100, and that's just inexcusable. Um, Eric, I know that one's going to completely blow your mind uh, that Matt had it in his bottom 25. I don't even know what to say. Don't, just move on. <laughs> right. It's it's just best to move on. Um, so, uh, so make sure you check that out. That is available right now with the uh, next three episodes coming uh, likely by the end of February. Uh, could possibly stretch into March, depending on uh, some scheduling things. Um, I have not seen a final schedule from the program director here at Matt Goes to the Movies, but uh, we're going to be recording those remaining episodes soon. Like I mentioned before, you can also hear Matt and myself with our friend Harrison over on his show, The Basement Binge. Uh, that is typically linked in the show notes. Uh, you can go check out his channel. Uh, it's very, very similar to Matt Goes to the Movies. Uh, just a guy who loves movies, is passionate about movies, loves talking about movies. Um, so definitely check out what he has going on. He's got some really good stuff. He just finished up with, um, prior to going on, um, uh, the, how to train your dragon binge. He covered all three Kung Fu Panda films, which are really, really fun. It's a good time, not just a family movie. It's a movie that adults can enjoy just as well. Uh, so make sure you check that out. Uh, Eric in support of, uh, video games, uh, month here at Matt goes to the movies. Uh, what do you have? Uh, you, you prepared some kind of ranking for us. What uh, would you like to share any gaming related rankings uh, to contribute to the video game discussion here happening at Matt goes to the movies? Okay. So first and foremost, I am a gamer. Like, let's just establish that I'm a gamer. I'm a freaking gamer. Unbelievable. Embarrassing amount of hours actually spent during my college years um, yeah. playing Halo 2. So I'm looking at my list and I was looking at how many games I have on my list that I know for a fact I have over a hundred hours into. Yep. It's a lot of them. Like, it's a lot. Here's of them. the other thing that's somewhat embarrassing, but at the same time, it's a kind of a badge of, of honor. Like the amount of platforms that I've played the same game on. So like Skyrim, right. <laughs> you know, I've played several times on, on several different uh, consoles. Um, you know, so like for me, my my uh, love, like my deep affection for for video games, is almost always going to be tied to it's nostalgia for me. And it's the same way for movies too, and this is why we're doing this. You know, like the movies that we grew up with as, as kids. Um, so like that's that's going to be like what dominates my uh, memory and, and ranking of video games is going to be how does it tie into my nostalgia how much do i love the memory of this game because the you know and there are games like you can remember that were better than that you know playing them now it's like eh, it's not so good anymore but it doesn't matter because while i'm playing it it's making me feel like i'm i'm eight or nine years old again um so like for me the the top couple and it's probably the the system the console that is uh, most nostalgic for me that's 
tied most to my my positive memories is the Super NES. You got Final Fantasy three, uh, the U.S. version, the Japanese version, and PlayStation and Vita and all that is uh, Final Fantasy six. But um, it's absolutely without a doubt. A lot of people say seven's the best. They're wrong. It's it's three slash six. Um, <laughs> absolutely the best. Chrono Trigger also on that console, just freaking phenomenal. Um, Maximum Carnage was probably one of the best beat 'em up games ever. Extremely difficult, which is how it should be for a beat 'em up game. Um, the N sixty four is probably next for me as far as nostalgia goes. Uh, I don't know how you can get better than Goldeneye. I know that it's not the Godfather of first person shooters that, that actually belongs to Doom and Quake. Um, Duke Nukem, those uh, PC games from, from the, the Golden Age. Um, but it certainly is the godfather of competitive multiplayer first-person shooter. Playing 1v1 Proxy Mines and GoldenEye, that is the pinnacle achievement of all gaming. If you're going to do competitive multiplayer, that's that's everybody's got a story about GoldenEye. Everybody's got a preference. Their 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 map, their their weapon type, whatever it is. Everybody's got something with that. Uh, obviously, nobody picks odd job unless you're a little bitch. Um, but the uh, NFL Blitz was another one for the '64. Holy crap! Do you remember Christmas when we got the '64? Yep. And we went to Grandma's and we Blitz was uh, Blitz was definitely featured. Oh my god! NFL Blitz on the '64. That was that was really kind of like. It, it, it before it's time because there wasn't like any like there wasn't a violent sports game at that point and it was like excessive i mean it was cartoonish you know it was uh it was campy uh, but it worked it was fantastic it was super fun because there was there was definitely a skillful football element to it and you could create your own plays and stuff like it was it was just it was way ahead of its time it was really really good um, a lot of really cool niche games on 64 that like maybe not a lot of people played winback was fun Hybrid Heaven was really cool. Blast Core, awesome. Star Fox, Mario Kart, uh, obviously you can't not talk about those. But um, that's, I mean, you know, in terms of next-gen type consoles after that, there's always an Xbox guy. So Knights of the Old Republic, like anything Star Wars is going to work for me as long as it, it actually is good and doesn't suck. Um, so KOTOR 1 and 2, freaking fantastic. Um Loved the Halo 2 was obviously a campaign and multiplayer. Holy crap, did I spend some time in the multiplayer? Uh, and then you know, you've got the, the Xbox 360. Um, that's when Oblivion, you know, the Elder Scrolls series, Oblivion came around, was really something completely different. That uh, I mean, I, I just recently played Morrowind, which was super cool, but I kind of paused it because. It just it just doesn't have the advancements, it, yeah, it, that you get when you go to it's hard, Oblivion. It's hard to work through. You really kind of have to be in the mood to do it. it. It really reminded me of. Do you remember King's Quest on the PC? Oh yeah, it was, yeah. So yeah. it kind of it just seemed like this generation's version of King's Quest. Like it was just it was dated. It wasn't that good. But Oblivion was awesome. Skyrim obviously is unbelievably great. Um, I was never really a GTA guy until four. Uh, and then obviously when five came out, you know, played the crap out of that. So those were fantastic. Um, I, I spent a ton of time lately though, playing NHL. I, my buddy and I play the crap at NHL, not ashamed of it. Um, 
love co-op though gears any gears game gears of war is probably one of the weirdest um i shouldn't say weird but like one of the uh, anomaly uh type franchises where the campaign and gears actually got better from each iteration like gears one yep. was unbelievable it was it was so different and so good and then all of a sudden the campaign for gears 2 was like oh here we go we're gonna one-up ourselves and then you don't expect that generally but then for a third entry it got better again just it's unheard of and then the fourth was better than like each one every every single one got got better i don't care for the open world stuff so much that they added into the newer stuff but it's still like the set pieces and like the actual fighting, the combat is incredible. You know, you actually identify with these characters. You, you grow to like them similar to like when you're watching a television show that runs multiple seasons, you know, from, from gears one to two to three to four, you start to have a a bond and and an affinity for these characters. And so that, that's great. Like when you have great storytelling and gaming, it's, it's a big deal. It's really hard to do and pull off successfully. And so, you know, hats off to the, uh, gears developers and, and publishers because they did a great job with that and um that's that's it that's all i got i could talk for <laughs> weeks about video games yeah so cut me off yeah so gaming is uh obviously something that's important to all of us here at uh, matt goes to the movie so we hope that uh, if you have not already done so that you will uh, download the first part of the top 100 games that we're going to cover um, it's, it's each person's individual list. Um, so we didn't like amalgamate it or anything like that. Uh, so it's up to each person individually what's impacted them. So, um, we have, uh, three more episodes of that coming. We hope you'll check those out as well. And we would certainly love to hear from you, uh, the listener. If, uh, if these words are making it their way into your earballs right now, we would love to hear from you on your favorite console, favorite controller. We talked about favorite and least favorite controller on the last episode. Um, but maybe what was your biggest letdown in gaming? What was it? What's your favorite series? If you can't rank your top 50 games or top 10 games, because that could be really, really tough. I know that was impossible for me to do. Uh, what are your favorite series? Um, you know, certainly I think Assassin's Creed features its way heavily throughout mine. Uh, Halo, Gears, those are all games that are definitely throughout mine. Uh, what are your favorite series that are just very reliable start to finish? You expect big things from. We would love to hear from listeners. Uh, you can interact with us on any of our social media platforms, uh, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. You can also email the show mgttmpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, also, quick plug, uh, you can rate the show on Podchaser. It's just a great uh, place to collect reviews from all the different places that you can download podcasts because you can download them on a million different platforms. But Podchaser is a great place to just collect one spot for all of the reviews. You can review this very episode you're listening to now or the show as a whole. Um podcasting isn't just all uh, turn on a microphone and all of a sudden the Ferraris and the yachts just back themselves up to your driveway. Uh, there's actually a lot of work that goes into it and, and we certainly enjoy doing it. We're happy to uh, bring you uh, new content every week, almost if not, if not more frequently than that. Um, but it always, it always feels nice to hear from somebody if, uh, if you like the show. So please uh, leave a review. You can leave a comment or not a comment. Uh, but just leaving an honest review is certainly appreciated. So uh, with that, uh, Eric, thank you again for joining us. This will conclude Matt Goes to the Movies Extended Podcast Universe Rob's review of The Rocketeer. <laughs>